the glory. That means we don't reserve any for ourselves. We don't deserve any. Well, good morning, Valley Bible Church family. I'm so glad you're here with us. I hope that you've all uh, availed yourself of the notes that are available to you. If you don't have any, I hope there's somebody that can hand some out. If you don't, if you need one, please uh, maybe let somebody know, and we'll see if we can get those distributed. We're going to continue our series this morning through the book of Colossians. What a great book. And I just want to start and jump right in this morning. And let me begin by asking two questions, and I think they're two of the most important questions I could ever possibly ask you. The first is, who is Jesus Christ? And the second question is, do you know him? Because on these two questions hangs your eternal destiny. You cannot be wrong about the answer to these two questions and be right with God. Either you know who Jesus Christ is or you don't. And either you have a personal relationship with him or you do not. Upon these two questions hangs everything. Everything about salvation, everything about a relationship with God, everything about forgiveness of sin, everything about where you will spend eternity. Christianity is Jesus Christ. But to know Jesus, we must understand two great things about him. And theologians often describe this as the person and the work of Christ. So it's clear to me that Maybe that's why Paul was so incredibly focused on this. And that's why we this morning must not leave here without a clear understanding of who he really is and what he has done so that we may know him accurately, but more importantly, know him personally. See, in our passage, we're going to see that Paul, he wanted to make sure that the believers at the Colossian church. This is who he's writing to. He's not writing to the pagan world. He's writing to believers. And why would he have to go back to such elementary things as these? But he wants them to know that this Jesus, who was the author of their salvation, is more than enough. They will not need anything other than Jesus. So let's just read the passage this morning. Open your Bibles, if it's not already open, to Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to begin at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Father, would you just open this up? Let us see 
the wonder of Christ. The wonder of your love for us that rescued us through Christ. That we may not leave here without being able to correctly answer those two questions on which our eternity hangs. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, people today will give you all kinds of answers to the question, who is Jesus Christ? I mean, the world at large has no lack of opinions or responses to the question. You know, to some, he's just part of their vocabulary to express a point. To others, they just, they believe it's what the hucksters might say and how they portray him to be. The Jesus of your best life now. The Jesus who wants you to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous and successful, who would spare you any hardship or pain. Or there's the Jesus that's portrayed by the cults, where Jesus is a good teacher, but certainly not God. But the real question this morning is not what the world thinks, it's what do we think right in this room? What do you think? That's Paul's concern in our passage this morning. He was writing to the Christians, and he wants them to know that hanging on to these truths is critically important in our world. Why? Because the world is going to try everything it can to rip them out of your hands. They're going to make you doubt what you thought you knew. But you might be thinking this morning, well, gee, we've been in this church or a church a long time. We know all this stuff. Why is it so important? I mean, why do you think, Tim, this might be a danger to Valley Bible Church? Well, let me share something with you. Just in 2022, this year, a survey was conducted of evangelicals, people who say the Bible is the word of God. They say Jesus is the only way to heaven. These are their answers to some of these questions, and I have to say they're disturbing. The first survey finding that I find this morning that's right about what Paul's talking about is this. Three out of four, 73%, agreed with the claim that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. You see a problem here yet? Second one, more than half of the people agreed that people are good by nature. Have they opened their eyes? Third thing, almost half, and this is the scariest, they said that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. These are evangelicals. These are our brothers and sisters that go to various churches. These are maybe some people in this room who've come to this church a long time. We got to be clear. This is scary. That's why I believe Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is trying to drive this point home this morning. And this passage in Colossians is one of the tightest, one of the most deepest, the densest ones that describe the personhood and the work of Christ in all of Scripture. And he says, this is going to be important if you're going to make it in this Christian life. See, there was something in their church, and I don't know what's in our church, but in their church or that Paul was writing to, there was something called the Colossian heresy. And the Colossian heresy was not just a single threat, but it was a mixture of Jewish legalism, Greek philosophy, uh, Eastern mysticism, asceticism, uh, even some uh, docetic uh, Gnosticism. There was um, all those things stirred together with some Christian language put on top, a little icing on the top. They never threw out Christ. They just added a bunch of stuff to him because Christ was not enough. That makes me sick to say that. Christ is enough. Christ is enough. But we have to understand that the fountainhead of all of our faults, all of our failings, all the weaknesses, all of the breakdowns of the church arrives and lands at the first place, which is what do you think of Jesus Christ? If you get that wrong, you get everything wrong. So let's just go, because I think Paul just wanted us to say, it's like, I'm going to hit the things right on the head first thing. Get this straight. And let's begin in verse 15. And I want to go through verse 15 and 20 because I think there's five key words that will help us understand and remember 
what he's trying to tell us about who Jesus is and what he's done. So you ready? Let's go. The first word is God. Jesus is God. Let's not mince words. He doesn't think he's God. He's God. The Apostle Paul begins his description in verse 15, and he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is. Who's he? Jesus is. Paul tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And the word translated image is really the Greek word icon, and it means really a likeness or a copy of. And it means exactness. So what Paul's saying here is Jesus is the exact likeness of God. He's the exact copy of God. Something like a mirror or the impression on a coin. But we might say, well, God's invisible, right? According to John 1.18, Jesus said, no one has seen God at any time. Uh, John 6.46, not that anyone has ever seen God. Or 1 John 4, 12, no one has seen God at any time. So what does God look like then? What does God sound like? What does God talk like? What does God do? Have you ever heard kids say, what does God look like? I have. Now the question is, there's a simple answer. We all need to point to Jesus. Jesus. Because he is God in human form. He is fully man and fully God. He is the God-man. John chapter 1, verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. According to Philippians 2, we learn that Jesus left something behind in heaven. He didn't leave his godhood. He left his, per, left his prerogative to act like God. He became a man, a servant, a slave to death. He's never been anything less than God. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of his glory and the exact Get this? The exact representation of his nature. He is the precise, the perfect, the accurate likeness of God. If you want to know what Jesus is representing, it's God. You look at Jesus, you're going to say, I see God the Father. In fact, Jesus said the same thing in John 14, verse 9. Philip and the disciples were saying, wow, we really love you, Jesus. Could you show us the Father? And Jesus, I think, was almost astounded but he said this, Have I been with you so long with you and you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Put them on a mirror, they look the same. Jesus told them earlier in John in chapter 10, I and the Father are one. Now remember what the surveyed evangelical said. He's a good teacher, but not God. I love what C.S. Lewis says. I don't have time for his whole quote, but he says, a good teacher would never lie and deceive. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. We don't have the choice of calling him a good teacher. So if you're in here and you think Jesus is a good teacher, but not God, that option is not open. It's not open. The only option that you have is he was either crazy or a liar, evil as can be, or he's God. Period. Well, another verse that we could look in, and further in Colossians, it says in verse chapter 2, verse 9, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Everything that makes God God is in Jesus. All of the holiness, all of the glory, all of the love, all of the power, all of the authority, all of the mercy, all of the righteousness, all of the justice, it's all in Jesus Christ. The fullness of God. Not some of the fullness of God. The fullness of God. When we look at Jesus, we see fully God. See, why was that important even to the Colossians? Because they believed, and I mentioned it before, the Gnostics believed that matter, the things you touch, is evil. Spirit is good. Matter, evil. 
So how is it possible that a holy, powerful, awesome spirit God could become physical? Either he's not really God to have a body, or he's not really a man. He came, but he looked like a man. He wasn't really a man. The Gnostics were wrong. God himself took on a body, and Paul's telling them, forget it. This is no ghost Jesus. This is no incomplete God Jesus. This is the God-man. He is nothing less than God. I don't want to spend a lot of time, but the rest of that verse said he's the firstborn of all creation. Let's just always get this in our head. Firstborn is not an order of birth. Firstborn is where sometimes our cult friends take a wrong turn and they say, aha, Jesus was born or created. Wrong. Jesus has a position of preeminence. This is what this term means. Firstborn is a title, a significance of authority, of preeminence. Jesus has not been created. He has the first place in all creation. If you want to know who to complain about anything in, in creation or who to go to, who's the highest in creation, it's Jesus. He is the firstborn of all creation. So now, who's Jesus to you? I hope you see that Jesus is who he said he was and who God said he was and that he is God. Because if you don't believe that, everything else we're going to cover here today doesn't matter. This is where we must start second word is creator verse 16 for by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth visible and invisible you know many people in our scientific community continue to seek out the origins of the universe and they puzzle over how all of this could have come together stuff they see and stuff they can't see so even in our so-called 21st century brilliant mind, many would rather still believe that everything came on its own accord. There was no intelligent design. There was no creator. It just happened. First there was nothing. Then it exploded. Then there was everything. It takes more faith to believe that than anything else. In fact, Frank Turk wrote a book, says, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. You, to believe that is almost beyond comprehension but that is where most of our scientific community is because if you acknowledge a God then you have to acknowledge that this is his world and that we're here under his rules uh, I can't do that so I'm going to pretend I know where the world came from and they teach it to our kids well Paul wants to give us a closer glimpse about this creative process because in the beginning we read that God in Genesis created the heavens and the earth. But verse 16 says this, that everything was created by Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ. He is the creator of all. He was the agency in heaven that created everything. Not one star, not one atom, not one molecule, not one person was that exists was not created by Christ. And it says in verse 16 that by him all things were created. And that word by really can also be translated in him all things were created. That means Jesus Christ is the center, the absolute source of every creative power in this universe. It's sourced in Christ. Nothing gets created without the power of Christ. He is the source. He is the center. And Jesus didn't outsource anything. Did you know that? He didn't say, okay, angels, I, I took care of the heavy lifting. You take care of the rest. Jesus is the personal agent that created absolutely everything, including you and me, and he was the one in Genesis 1-1 who said, let there be light. And there was light. That was Jesus talking. That's our God. And as we move on, we see he created both heavens and the earth. Well, heavens is just the vastness of space, stars, 
galaxies, and the angelic beings, both fallen and unfallen, and the earth, everything on the earth. Well, that refers to our planet, all the mountains, the rivers, the streams, the oceans, the fish, the birds, the animals, the human life, everything was made by Christ. And he says it's visible and invisible. Now, this is important. Because the visible really means the physical things we see, and the invisible really means the angelic world. And he even listed them, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. These are the same things that Paul talked about in Ephesians, in three chapters in Ephesians. What happens? Why the focus on the invisible world? Because, again, the Galatian church had this philosophy that angels were instrumental in reaching God. It's almost like you needed another intermediary. You needed to go to this angel for this, then you go to this angel for this. Ever heard of saints, and you go to this saint for this, and this saint for that? And This is the whole thing of the Colossian church. And he's saying, time out! Do you understand you're going to an intermediary because the one who created every one of those angels is Christ. You don't need them. You can go right to the source. You don't need your distributor. You go to the source. Right? And he says, don't forget, Jesus is the source. Wow. Paul said the same thing in Romans chapter 1. For he said, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the create, created rather than the creator. Don't we do that today? I think we do that today. In our culture, we often put greater value on the things that he's created than on him. We're sadder if he takes away our car or our house than if we took away him. We're sadder if he takes away our health than if he takes away him. The one who spoke everything into existence out of nothing, Christ is all we need. We must not give our devotion or our, uh, place our faith in any object that has been created. Because whatever has been created, guess what? It will be uncreated. At the end of time, it will be destroyed. What he's saying here is pastors, prophets, angels, Mary, money, possessions, family, hobbies, or emotions should never take first place of our devotion and worship and reliance on our contentment, on our happiness, on our success in life. It's on Christ alone. You can never have that taken away from you. All these other things can be taken. Christ will remain. Christ will remain. Well, it also says all things have been created through him and for him. Through him means by the agency of Christ alone. He is the designer. And for him means that everything that he made is for him, for his glory, and it's his. Hmm, for his pleasure. What does that mean for us? Well, this world really is all about him. Not us. Including us. We're for him. In fact, believer, you got to understand, you have been doubly his. Just because he created you and this is his world, you are his. But he also did like Hosea did with his wife, Gomer. He was, she was his wife before, but she went off into prostitution and slavery, and he had to buy her back. And guess what? Jesus bought us back, and he owns us, and he doubly owns us. We are owned doubly. J. Vernon McGee said this, I don't know if you've ever heard of J. Vernon McGee, but he had a folksy way about him. And he said this, friends, this is God's universe, so you're going to have to do things God's way. You may think you have a better way, but you just don't have your own universe in which to do it in. He goes on to say, if you don't like God's universe, just go ahead and create your own universe and come up with your own rules and run it the way you would like to. But until then, remember, you're living in God's universe. You are on God's planet. You're breathing God's air, and you're drinking God's water. You are His. So as we live in God's universe, let's always remember, 
He told us that Jesus Christ is creator. We need no other middleman. We need nothing he has created. We can go to the source and Jesus Christ remains God and he remains creator. He's all we need. He's also sustainer. That's our third word. In verse 17, we come to understand that God is no distant God with the universe on autopilot. Instead, we'll read that all he creates, he personally, personally sustains and maintains. Oh, this is cool. Some philosophers and deists used to believe that the world was like a top. God started it, and there it spins, and he walked away. Thomas Jefferson believed that, one of our presidents. But you know what? He doesn't do that. It says here that he is in charge and sustains everything. The creator, our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, is continuously and intimately involved with you and everything he has made. Verse 17 says he is before all things. This is telling us that Jesus pre-existed anything that can be called a thing. So he has to pre-exist himself. He can't have made himself. He pre-exists all things. He had to be God before everything was created. So therefore, he's not one of the things. He's eternal. He existed. And it says the same thing in John 17, 5, that restore the glory I had with you before the world even was. But Jesus says he holds all things together. This is a new concept do you know what's keeping this earth from falling apart? Do you know what holds the earth on its axis? Do you know why gravity is so reliable that you can call it a law? Momentum, inertia, all the laws of physics, why do they work? Do you know why the universe itself doesn't just go kaplooey? Good word, right? Kablooey. It's only the sustaining power of the Lord Jesus Christ, period. Period. See, over the years, chemists have, have come to understand a lot about how atoms and molecules combine, how they exist, how you can uh, manipulate them, even how to even blow them up. But there's something that they don't know. They can't explain when you stuff all those protons in the center of a molecule, it's like taking magnets and trying to put the reverse poles together. They want to push apart. All the, all the particles in the center of an atom want to push apart, just like those magnets. But somehow, they're all stuffed together and they hold. And the scientists have come up with a made-up term because they don't understand it, and they call it a strong nuclear force. And that is true. Look in the physics book. Strong nuclear force is what holds atoms together. Do they know what causes it? No. Do we? Yes. It's Jesus. Jesus is the strong nuclear force. And it's interesting that you might say, the only thing that keeps this universe from being a nuclear bomb right now, completely annihilated, is the holding power of our awesome creator God, Jesus. In fact, you personally could be a nuclear bomb if you let your atoms go. Do we get it? This is the God who sustains everything. Now, when he sustains everything, and you know he has every heartbeat, every breath, every need, every thought, your faith is being sustained by Christ. Your life is being sustained by Christ. This church is being sustained by Christ. Everything that is being sustained is being sustained by Christ. Now, can he handle your difficulties? This God that now is so intimate that every particle of every atom is being personally held together by Jesus, he is so intimate. Do you think he's intimate enough with you to handle what's going on? Yes! Absolutely yes! Definitely yes! See, there is no situation that he is not strong and powerful and wise enough to address. No physical situation he can't resolve. No healing too difficult. No detail too 
small to escape his notice. No battle too lopsided that he can't gain victory. No prayer he's not able to do exceedingly and abundantly above everything we can ever ask or think. We think too small about our God. This God is sustaining absolutely every particle in the universe. And we think, well, I don't know if he can handle my problem. Are you kidding me? He is the sustainer. So now he's God. He made you. And now he sustains you forever. Now, verse, the next one in verse 18 and 19, he is head or Lord. In verse 15 to 17, Paul describes how the Lord Jesus Christ is preeminent in creation. We just saw that. And now in 18 and 19, he moves and he says, okay, I want to tell you, Jesus is not just preeminent in creation. He's preeminent in redemption. He's preeminent in salvation. So let's read. It says at the beginning of verse 18, he is also the head of the body, the church. I love this. And we never must forget this. Who is in charge of Valley Bible Church? Jesus. Who's in charge of every church of Jesus Christ? Jesus. Do you think he has enough power and bandwidth to do that? Yes. Does he have enough wisdom to give his church? Yes. Enough power, enough resources to give his church? Yes. We are not in charge of his church. But see, all of us are part of this body, and everybody got assigned a part. According to 1 Corinthians 12, God placed every one of us in the body exactly where he wanted us. Now, some of us don't like being a toenail. I know that. And some of us maybe want to be something more profound. But I'll tell you what, if that toenail starts hurting, that whole body is going to move. Right? We're all interdependent with one another. Now, we are not all the same body part. And we all need one another. We are dependent on one another. We are reliant on one another. We function as one, but there is only one head. There's only one in charge. That's what head means. Head doesn't mean cabeza, doesn't mean head. It means the one in charge, the one in control, the one that has all authority, the one that provides life and control and direction to the body. How long will a physical body last without a head? Why do they use guillotines to kill people? Because you remove the head, you remove the life of the body. The body dies. The church will die without the head. We are dependent on the head for all the grace, all the wisdom, all the power, all the life. The life of the body is in the head giving it. To, it's like the vine, right? We're a branch. He's the vine. The life is in the vine. We need to stay connected but he is in charge. Well, when you're in charge of the body, did you know you're in charge of all the parts of the body? Does that mean you and me? Or is he just in charge of us collectively when we meet? We'd like to think that. He's in charge of the body. That means every part of the body. That means your body and its life is under his headship. It should be. That means your social life, your work life, your leisure life, your church life is under the headship of Christ, right? It should be. Because you're not going to get the life and the power and the resources you need to do those things without being connected to the head. Well, it says he's the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. The beginning of what? He is the beginning of salvation. And you know, his salvation plan did not begin at Calvary. It began before the foundation of the world. In Ephesians 1, chapter, uh, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 4, it says what? He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He had this plan in place before we even were even on the scene. And he was first in redemption. It is all about Jesus. Firstborn, from the dead? Well, he wasn't the first person ever resurrected, was he? We have stuff in the Old Testament that says the widow son of Nain uh, was resurrected. So he can't be the first person. It's not chronology again. This is the preeminent one, 
the preeminent one in resurrection. Why? Because his resurrection sets the stage for all of our resurrection. Without his resurrection, we don't live. What did 1 Corinthians 15, 17 say? If Christ be not raised, our faith is in vain. Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead. He demonstrated his power. He's the only one with the authority that says, I'm going to lay my life down and I'm going to take it back up again. This is our God. He is preeminent even over death. death. Death wasn't even an obstacle to him. He wasn't even stumped for a moment. He just says, I laid it down, and at the proper time, I brought my life back. And just because I did, according to John 14, if I live, you will live. This is our hope. We can look at Jesus and say, well, how do you know you're going to live again? Because Jesus is. He's the one that's living. In verse 19, well, I have to say this. It says, so he may, the rest of 18 is important, so that he himself may come to have first place in everything. Do you know that Jesus is only satisfied with being first? He never will be satisfied with anything less. Anything less. I don't, it's not first and a half, second place, fourth place. As long as I get them in the mix, I'm good. No, first place. Now, maybe there's some places in your life that you've surrendered to Christ. Wonderful. Are there any carve-outs? Are there any off-limit areas for Jesus that he's not in first place in your life? How about your relationships? Your family? Your marriage? Your job? Your body? Your money? Your time? Your sexuality? Is it all under the headship of Christ and does he have first place? That's what he seeks. That's what he paid this price for, that he might have first place. We need to be careful. He will settle for nothing less. Nothing less. Well, in verse 19, again, he just, Paul's reinforcing, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. <laughs> Can you think of it? Can you think of another person who should be in charge of the church other than Jesus? If we have this God-man, the creator-man, the sustainer-man, the headship, why should he not be in charge of the church if the fullness of God resides in him? He's saying, you guys, are, you're, you, you would not be doing things his way if he is not in charge. And that's why you and I don't have a chance to reinvent church. Did you know that? We don't get a chance to change church for our new generation. We're going to make it hip. We're going to make it cool. Only thing we have permission to do is what he said we could do. That's it. Because he is the head. And he must have first place, even in the church. Well, the last word is reconciler. And it says, and through him, Christ, to reconcile all things to himself. That's the Father having made peace by the blood of his cross. So we're going to, just in a minute, address the effects of our reconciliation a little more tightly. But right now, let me just say this. All things. What has reconciled to himself all things? Well, he just went through and said all things four times, if you just noticed, in verses 16 and 17. He created all things, all things for him, all things, all things. Four times. He's saying all of these things have been reconciled to Christ. Now, one of us might think, well, wait a minute. Are you teaching universalism now, Paul? Everybody's going to be saved because all things now have been reconciled to God? That means every person, every angelic being, everything is going to be reconciled to God? No. That's not consistent with Scripture, and that's not what reconciled means here. Reconciled really means to fundamentally change, to alter the relationship of, or to place in a, things in a perspective to reconcile facts or numbers. Ever, ever heard of sort of reconciling the books? You're not forgiving the books. You're aligning the books with reality. Can you get that? To reconcile the books is to align them with reality and truth. And he says he will reconcile and align all of creation to reality and truth. 
Now, some of us are going to be reconciled and have our personal relationships with God fundamentally changed for the good. We will be brought into a place of friendship, love, acceptance. But this is not what he's talking about with the rest of humanity. Because in Philippians 2, it says that his cross work, being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And it says, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Are you hearing what's going to happen? When he reconciled all things to himself on the cross, that means even the unbelievers will one day stand before him in a new relationship with this God, in a relationship of divine and righteous judgment and acknowledgement, Jesus Christ was Lord. They're all going to be changed. They're going to be aligned with the facts and the truth. And they're going to stand condemned, even though he has reconciled them. Paul's not saying everybody's saved. But everybody's relationship with God has been forever been changed because of the cross work of Christ. Everyone's, even the unbelievers. Now, we as believers joyfully can enter into that relationship right now. We don't have to wait till the end of time to be reconciled to the Father. God has reconciled us right now. And we get to say, Jesus is Lord now. But rest assured, you will say, Jesus Christ is Lord whether you're reconciled in joy or in judgment. You will. Well, let's see. The effects of Christ's reconciling work. See, I would just say this. In verse 21, he begins by describing our past alienation. Now, it says, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, we need to first stop a moment. And he says, well, you were formerly, who's the you? Believers. Believers were in a state of alienation, but they have been, that was a former thing. That was a past tense. But everyone on the planet entered the world born alienated. You and I, believe it or not, you and I entered the world alienated from God. Anybody that knows Christ now entered the world alienated from God. And so some people right now sitting in this room have been in the past alienated and some have as, as their present reality, they are alienated right now. And what does that mean? That means estranged, cut off, separated. Wow. Wow. That's why Jesus said when we came into the world and we were born alienated, we needed to be born again. We needed a birth that would restore that relationship. Second thing, our attitudes were hostile in mind toward God. We opposed God in everything. Did you know none of us was neutral towards God before we put our faith in Christ? None of us were neutral. We were his enemies. In fact, did you know all believer, unbelievers hate God? Now, you might find that hard to believe, but the Bible says that all unbelievers hate God. In fact, you and I hated God before we knew Christ. And you say, well, I know some really good people. They don't look like they hate God. God says they hate God. In fact, Jesus said in John 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates, present tense, me. Why? Because I testify that its deeds are evil. See, Jesus says, we are hostile to God and we are his enemy. Third, our actions. We are engaged in evil deeds. Nobody had to teach us how to be good sinners. I doubt any one of you in this room has ever taken your child at any time and says, Johnny, Johnny, you're obeying me too much. You need to say no more often. Or how about uh, Billy, Billy? Hey, hey, you need to get better at sneaking those cookies while I'm not around. Whoever had to take their kids and teach them how to misbehave? Nobody. We didn't have to be taught. They don't have to be taught. We entered the wor world naturally sinners by nature. We were sinners by nature. 
And we had a desire and a bent to do sin and do it with gusto until we met our Savior. Well, so this is how we were, alienated, hostile, and doing evil deeds. And what did God do? Oh, by the way, I want to say one thing. There's something worse than us hating God. Do you know what that is? You might say, what could be worse than that? God was our enemy. He hated us. According to Psalm 5.5, it says this. You hate, God hates all who do iniquity. He's not the one. We put this little trite saying, he loves the sinner but hates the sin. In one sense, that's possibly true because he sent his redemptive love for everyone who was sinners. But it says here, he hates everyone who does iniquity. That means even us, before we became believers, we were in the bullseye of God's judgment. Jesus said, the wrath of God abides on everyone who is not yet redeemed. We didn't have to create that wrath. It exists. Well, we just need to go on. We needed help, didn't we? We desperately needed help. We're alienated. We're God's enemy, and he's our enemy. Do you want God for your enemy? That's not one I want. Well, it says in verse 22, he's taken us from our past alienation to our present reconciliation. And I'm going to go quickly. It says, Jesus has now reconciled you, brought you back together, put you in a relationship of friendship and harmony and love and acceptance and peace. How? In his fleshly body. Again, Paul is reminding them, this is no ghost Jesus. This is the physical God-man. And he died. This God-man died. His death. Did you know that all of us had the death penalty hanging over our head? We were all under a death warrant. Every one of us. But Jesus stepped in front of us. It says, everybody who trusts in me, Father, I'll take it. I'll die for them if they'll just trust in me. So right now, you have to say, is the death warrant still active for you? Because if you haven't trusted in God, all the souls that sin shall surely die. God has a death warrant out for you. But last, it says, what did he do for us? He made us holy, pure, morally blameless. He says, we're like blameless, like the lamb sacrifice that was spotless and pure. And he says, the best one. Did you know that he's going to present us without reproach, right? Is that what it says? Without and beyond reproach. That means that we're unchargeable in the court of heaven. There is not one charge that Satan your friends, anyone, or God himself will ever raise against you that will stick in heaven. Because every charge has been settled through Christ on the cross. Every charge against you, because those charges were true. These aren't made up, trumped up charges in the court of heaven. These are real charges. But not one will be remaining and accounted to you in heaven because of Christ. Your record is clean. When he looks at you and says, let's see, what's this guy done? Well, his record is clean. And you think, how can that be? I know me. I know me. And even, even when I come up cleaned up, spruced up, and looking good in church, I know me. And I ain't pretty on the inside all the time. God says, through Christ, your record is clean. You're spotless. And when Jesus, according to Jude 24, presents you to the Father, he's going to say, Grant, hey, Father, Grant is here. He says we will be presented with great joy, blameless, spotless. Whoa, what a transformation. There's not been a greater transformation, I don't think, in all of history than taking a wretched, vile sinner, a hater of God and an enemy, into a lover of God who is holy, blameless, and without spot and without reproach. There's not one greater. Well, 
The last part of this verse in 23, and I've got to speed up and finish. It says in verse 22 to 23 that all these things are true for you. It says, if you continue in the faith. Now that if is not a hypothetical for you. It's not like, ooh, I wonder if he will. No, it's if means assuming. Read this verse, assuming you continue in the faith. And this is Paul's main point of the whole passage. We must hold tight, hold fast, hold securely to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the only thing that saves. There's nothing that can be added that will add anything for us. And he says that you need to hold steadfast, not move from the hope of the gospel. This church must remain about the hope of the gospel. It can't get off on any hobby horses, any tangents, any social justice, any anything. A hope of the gospel. That is the only thing that will redeem man and assure us this blameless status before God. There's nothing more critical for us in these perilous times to not be sidetracked, but to continue holding on to the simplicity of the hope of the gospel. The world doesn't like it because it's too easy to them. But this is what saves the power of Christ and the gospel. So our text is clear this morning. You need to know who Jesus is because no mere man could have been nailed to a cross and affect our salvation. That took an eternal, infinite God to pay an infinite debt against an infinite, holy God. No mere man could have paid the debt of our sin. He had to be the God-man. And that God-man is sufficient because he's the one that created and sustains and holds everything together. Can he hold you together this week? Do you think he can get you through this week with all the things that are on your plate? Can he uphold you enough? Or do you need to seek other help? Go to a few angels, say a few prayers, do something, uh, behave, maybe have better emotions. Do you know your emotions have nothing to do with your salvation? If you don't feel saved, but you believe in the truth and the gospel, I don't care about your emotions. Faith is a solid fact. It's not based on your emotions. Satan's going to want to manipulate your emotions every day. He's going to make you think, I'm not worthy. I'm not this. I'm not that. Who cares? Do you believe in Christ? He is enough. He is sufficient. He is our salvation. He is our redeemer. So we need to make sure that this church and us as individuals never add anything to the gospel of Christ. It must always remain faith in Christ plus nothing. Other voices are going to come and they will try to entice us. But we individually and Valley Bible Church must never move from the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for showing us how wonderful our Savior is. I am so inadequate at lifting up Christ, but you can lift him up in our hearts through your Spirit. You can make him as big, as wonderful, and as amazing as he really is. Let every one of us, Father, today not trust in anything else than Christ. We put nothing above him, that he has first place in everything in our life, and that we would love and adore and relax in him because he upholds us perfectly. In Jesus' name, amen.